All right. Can everyone hear me okay? Is it all right? Okay. Uh, thanks for coming and being out here on a Saturday morning. Uh, I know I could use a couple more cups of coffee, but <laughs> um, my name is Lauren McGahey. I am a reporter here in Austin. I work for the Dallas Morning News. Um, and uh, you're at the panel called The Price of Admission. We're going to be dealing with issues of race, access, affordability, and more, hopefully, in higher education. Uh, I apologize. I have really terrible allergies, so I'm going to try to make it through without blowing my nose into the mic, but I don't make any guarantees. Um, and I want to welcome you on behalf of the Texas Tribune uh, and the sixth annual Texas Tribune Festival to this panel. Uh, I'm going to introduce very, very briefly the panelists, um, but I'm not going to do a big, long spiel um, because I want to ask them a quasi-funny question to kind of break the ice after that. Um, and we are, um, this panel is supported by Pearson, just so you know. Um, the sponsors and donors underwrite the event, but they play no role in determining the event's content, panelists, or line of questioning. I can guarantee you that. Um, so let's get started. Uh, we're going to start at the end. Uh, we have Guy Bailey, the first, uh, I like this term, the founding president of UT Rio Grande Valley. Uh, before uh, that, he was president of uh, Texas Tech University. And I tell you, this guy has been everywhere. Alabama, Missouri, uh, UT San Antonio, Nevada, Oklahoma, Emory, and, and maybe a couple of places in between that I'm forgetting. So that's uh, right on the end, uh, President Guy Bailey. Um, we, just uh, to his right, uh, we have President Michael Sorrell. Uh, he is the president of Paul Quinn College in my newspaper's area, Dallas. Uh, before that, he was uh, a member of the Clinton administration, and he actually tried uh, previously to becoming president of the college in 2007. He pitched himself as president, and he finally got the job in 2007 and has done some pretty amazing things there in the last several years, including turning the football field into a farm, uh, We Over Me Farm, and uh, instituting a mandatory work program for all of the students, as well as some other things. Uh, to his right, we have Brian McCall, uh, Texas uh, State uh, University System Chancellor, a former legislator, also representing my newspaper's area, North Dallas, Frisco, Plano, that whole area. Now he lives, I believe you live down here in Austin, uh, in the you know belly of the blue beast. <laughs> um, uh, I'm interested to hear uh, his trajectory at some point, maybe during this panel, going from uh, Baylor, SMU, and then he decides to get a doctorate in philosophy at UT Dallas. I thought that was particularly interesting. Uh, so we have the chancellor of uh, Texas State University System. And finally, to my left, uh, we have uh, Dr. Cynthia teniente Matson. She is a, a native of San Antonio who's also been all over the place. Uh, she was uh, went to uh, high school there, or middle school, elementary, elementary uh, before her parents moved to California. And eventually, she made her way all the way to Alaska, uh, where she was in um, higher education institutions in Alaska. And then she came back to California for uh, in Fresno. She was also involved in higher education there. And now, full circle, back to San Antonio, where she is the second president of Texas A&M San Antonio. And, uh, we're glad to have a San Antonio native back uh, leading that university. So um, the kind of icebreaker question 
that I want to pose to y'all is what has kept you in higher education or what uh, uh, brought, has brought you to back to it? Um, if there's any one uh, event or experience you have that, you know, with all of the turmoil, with funding, with, uh, with access, um, I feel like institutions of higher education seem to be at the forefront of almost every conversation now, um, unlike uh, they've done since the 1960s. So what's kept you in that, that boiling pot? Um, and if we could start on the end with... Oh, with me. With you, yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. And uh, uh, it, it's, a, it's a, an interesting time to be in higher education right now because there is so much turmoil and uncertainty. And uh, in one sense, that's... I guess why I'm still in it is because I enjoy being, it's the same uh, excitement you get from riding the roller coaster, right? The, it, there, there's a kind of thrill there, but there's excitement in making things happen. I think if you ask people why they become presidents, you like to see things happen. You like to create, you like to innovate, you like to make things happen, but, but uh, I guess that's why I'm still in it. Okay, great. Well, <clears throat> so I had an eclectic career path um, this is the only job in higher education I've ever had. I was a corporate securities lawyer who discovered that he was far more comfortable with risk than a lawyer should be. Um, so I'm entrepreneurial by nature. And for me, it's an opportunity to solve the big issues of our day. So we've created an institutional model with the goal of solving urban poverty. I just think people deserve better. I think it's inexcusable that we pretend that students from under-resourced communities can't do extraordinary things, and we exist to try and prove that wrong. The eight institutions in the Texas state system have a philosophy that administrators need to do more than hold the door open. We need to intrusively be in the student's business to get them in and out the door. We think it's immoral to admit and not graduate. And so we educate a lot of first-generation college students. And when they graduate, they likely will marry a college graduate. Their children will become college graduates. It's transformative for them and the society at large. There's no bigger kick than that. Well, for me, I am very inspired and have great gratitude for being around students. And as a university president, that is the one thing that gets me up in the morning, keeps me going every single day. I was a chief financial officer for a long time, and so I understand all of the ins and outs of the finances and the mechanics of higher education from that perspective. Now, returning to San Antonio and being in a community within five miles of my childhood home, which is a very impoverished neighborhood. I'm a first-generation college student, and I am very grateful being back in this community that continues to have a very low degree attainment in the, the entire section there of San Antonio where, where my university is located. And it inspires me every day, thinking about the change that we're making in people's lives. That's what keeps me in higher ed. Great. All right, uh, so I want this to be less of a panel discussion uh, than a brainstorming session. So I want you all to feel like you can ask each other questions after I pose a question and kind of riff off of each other. I, I want it to be like, here's, here's the problem. How have you solved it? Uh, if, if you're curious about some, a program at someone else's university or system, you know, throw that out there. Uh, I, I want it to be less you know, static, me, me throwing something to you, and then we go down the line. Um, just to kick things off, I thought if we could kind of look at this as a, where we are, 
where we're going and where we've been. Um, and if we could start with the where we are question, the, the, really the focus of this panel is supposed to be what works and what doesn't work uh, in Texas in keeping our colleges accessible and affordable, but also helping and improving success rates. And this is especially among uh, people of lower socioeconomic backgrounds, um, keeping colleges diverse. Um, if you want to, you know, if you want to talk about top 10%, if you want to talk about financial aid, this is the time to do it. Pitch a particular program that you feel is working. But, you know, let's, let's kind of start a discussion amongst ourselves and, and go from there. So I, I'm going to let anyone who wants to, to start off kind of throw their hat in the ring. You mentioned the access, and there, there, we've always had access in Texas, I think, for uh, students from diverse backgrounds. Uh, that's probably not the issue. The real issue is success, and, and it's not enough to go to college. What you want is, is to graduate, and I think closely tied to the success issue, and that's a significant issue at many of our colleges and, and, and universities around the state, no, no question about it. And, as Brian said, we have a moral obligation to the success of our students and to, to try to graduate our, our students. The, uh, the other issue is educational opportunity. Uh, at the two legacy institutions in the Valley, you could always get a very good bachelor's program. Uh, you could get some master's programs, but the range of options that you could go into uh, were not very great. For instance, if you wanted to be a physical therapist, you had to go somewhere else. You want to be an optometrist. You had to go somewhere else. You wanted to be a medical doctor. You had to go somewhere else. And, and I think that's typically been the case with many HSIs and HBCUs. The range of programs available, the range of opportunities are not nearly as great as they are other places. So we really see our mission is, is twofold, making our students more successful, helping them graduate, get, and then expanding the opportunities for students as well. The medical school in the Valley is just, just the first uh, the first installment for that. We'll be adding a number of new programs um, in, in health-related uh, areas that I think will provide students with good jobs when they graduate and, and really provide a path to a, a much better life. President Sorrell, do you agree with that, that sometimes the, the programs available to students at HBCUs or, or institutions that serve minorities aren't as, as broad, that we're kind of pigeonholing kids into certain programs? Well, I think it goes back to what your goal is. We have absolutely no desire to offer every program that they do or some of the other schools do, right? But by the same token, we think that to really borrow uh, the chancellor's term, and I'm a little concerned about agreeing with the Republican, but... Um, I'm not a very good Republican. <laughs> Especially but, this year. But this, this idea of being intrusive, right? So here's the reality. Some of this is about exposure, okay? What we seek to do is to expand the exposure of our students in a very hands-on and personal way. So 85% of our students are Pell Grant eligible. 70% of our students have zero expected family contributions. So many times their aspirations are limited to that of which they've seen, mm -hmm. and they haven't seen enough. So what we do is we say to a student, for example, because we recruit the inner cities of this country, and I'm always fascinated by students who are very bright, very gifted, who say, well, I want to be a physical therapist, right? Absolutely nothing wrong being a physical therapist, except that when I'm in affluent high schools, 
That's not the career aspiration that students who are interested in science have. They want to be doctors. So you push a little harder. You say, well, do you really want to be a physical therapist, or has it not occurred to you that you could be a doctor? Right? Well, we can have that conversation because there's not 500 students in a classroom. Mm -hmm. right? So it's not, we are a liberal arts-inspired institution. Our goal is not to kill you with breath. Our goal is to love you with depth. And that's a very different mission, and we're proud of that mission. I, I want to ask, there was a, a great Atlantic story that was written about you recently about the work, the work program that you had. And the question was posed, can that model work in a huge institution? Is it, is it possible? Is it sustainable? And I wonder, Chancellor, if, if, if you, this idea of, you know, Paul Quinn College is, is 450 students? Surging. Surging, but it's a it's a small it's a small you know right, right. it's no, a very small institution, right. and there is that very one on one individual sometimes from you as right, the president. Um, what how can you use that, and can you use a model like that at a Texas State University? So let me just just for one clarification. Sure. There are eight other work colleges in the country, right? The difference is we are the only urban work college. So the model is already out there, and it's being applied. And what we have said is you can turn it out and apply it in an urban context, mm -hmm. and it absolutely can be replicated. But just, sorry, I wanted to get a little point of clarification. No, no, good. Uh, you know, we're, we're a big operation. We're 85,000 students. But the ab answer is absolutely yes. Let me tell you what we've done in six years. In six years, we've increased Hispanic enrollment by 64%. African-American enrollment by 29%. More important than that, degrees awarded to Hispanics are up 62%. Degrees awarded to African-Americans up 60%. Hispanic faculty up 35%. African-American faculty up 42%, and we're not through. That's in the first six years. How are we doing it, and what are we doing? Well, it's easy to change faculty makeup when you're growing at a great clip, which we're doing, and we're putting emphasis on making the student body and the student mentors look like Texas. It's very important, we believe. But we're also creating academic advising centers on each campus. Six years ago, we had one. Now we have seven. We need one more, <clears throat> and we will get it. And they're very intrusive academic advising centers. A student misses a couple days of class, and they get a call. Come in. Let's talk. Why did you miss uh, the last two pop quizzes? Come in. Let's talk. What's the problem? What's going on? Very intrusive counseling, at least at the freshman level. We can take it beyond that uh, as we go by. But yes, big institutions can make big progress as well. And I would add to that, you know, at our university, at Texas A&M in San Antonio, we're a relatively young university. We're growing also at a fast clip. We have 5,500 students this year, our first freshman class ever, thanks to the Texas legislature from last session. And we are, so we're able to build a model, we call it the National Model for Student and Academic Success, where we are able to take the best practices that exist around the country and implement them. So we know that we're removing choices, in some cases, from students with mandatory programming, mandatory orientation, mandatory student academic success coaches. Every student has an academic success coach in addition to their advisor. And the academic success coach not only meets the student, they meet the student's parents. And so we're talking about meeting students where they are. At Texas A&M University in San Antonio, we represent the demographic reflection of what our nation will look like by the year 2040 or 2050. 81% of our freshman class 
is Hispanic, self-identified. Uh, almost 6%, little over 6% identify as African-American. So we have a very diverse student body now. We're looking at those practices. Uh, we are the only university in the country, to my knowledge, and I've talked to lots of experts about this, that are doing four years of what we call JAG tracks, which is very similar to a freshman year experience for year one, but we take it to year two, year three, and year four, where the faculty have added four credits, and this means they've had to make some, have some very difficult conversation about what the trade-offs are to build in these four credits to ensure that student academic success occurs every year in the program to the intrusive nature of that. We're also implementing, much like the work college model, experiential learning. Everyone does experiential learning. We're doing it to scale. And that's where the question that you posed to the chancellor about scale is we're building at scale. So everything we're doing is for every single student that we serve, both at the undergraduate level in terms of first year students, but transfer students as well. We're implementing experiential learning transcript, which is new this year. So for a first generation student, they can document their other extracurricular activities that occurred both in the class, if they had a service learning class, but their clubs, their activities, their rec sports, where they meet leadership criteria through a true rubric, mm -hmm. not just that they showed up and participated. So that when a first generation student graduates, they're equally as competitive as a student who comes from a generation of either affluence or a second generation of educational attainment in their household. And they learn the things that they may not learn at home mm -hmm. because they simply don't have that exposure, as you mentioned. And the key to this, and we all know this at the table or here in this room, is mindset. So you really have to also address mindset, which can only be done almost one-on-one -on -one with the student themselves. So I agree with my colleagues here that it can be done to scale in very different ways that will move the needle for degree attainment and success for the state of Texas. I just want to add one other thing that I think folks discover when they embrace an intrusive model, that a smaller percentage than many people would be aware of, of a student's success actually has to do with the academic side of the house, right? I mean, when you are dealing with students who come to you from these under-resourced communities, you're dealing with the insecurity that poverty has caused. So what some folks might look at as a small problem, in the context of a life where everything you do has been problematic because you haven't had the resources. So that becomes a bigger issue. So for example, we had a student this week who had three family members die in three weeks, okay? Wow. It's hard for anybody. It's, it's, it's <laughs> devastating for anyone, just the emotional pain. Right. But you add to that the insecurity of how do I even get home to Chicago to go to the funerals? And, and I'm not talking about the plane ticket home. I'm talking about the mother was stressed about getting the child to the airport because they had no extra money to pay for a cab. Right now, little things like that aren't little things if you come from a background where there are those types of issues. So you have to, this is part of being intrusive. You have to have models where you make students understand that it's okay to ask for help. And it's okay to be in an environment where people are gonna judge you for what you don't have, right? Let us just put our arms around you and love you and we'll worry about the rest of it later. That makes an enormous difference. From time to time, when I talk to faculty, I'll say something like this. When was the last time you worried about where your next meal was coming from? Mm 
or if the lights were going to come on when you hit the switch. It's, it's a different experience for the faculty member to think about it in that context when they're teaching. And, and our faculty are terrific and very sensitive to the needs of the students that they're serving, and that's what, part of what makes it great. You know, the, the, uh, I think all of those are very good points, the intrusiveness, and uh, uh, I think several of us were first-generation college students ourselves. And so uh, it's important to understand exactly what sometimes students lack. If, if uh, students have had parents or brothers or sisters who've gone to colleges, they have a, an informal network already. You have a support network right there that helps you move forward. Many of our kids, and of course like uh, uh, the other universities, vast majority of our students, first generation college students, uh, uh, about 89% of them Latino. So it, it, it's, uh, you, you have to recreate for them what other kids bring as an advantage to college. Mm -hmm. And so trying to recreate those, those yeah. informal net support networks are a very important part of the intrusion. You know, the other thing that we have <clears throat> at our disposal that we've not thought much about in higher education as a lever, uh, it, a way of providing both carrots and sticks to graduation is the way we handle tuition and fees. And I want to talk just a second about that. Uh, you know, the if students who graduate, who are on, who take 15 hours or full-time students have a much better chance of graduating than those who don't. The more hours you take, the faster you go through, the more likely you are to graduate. And so with this in mind and with our student body in mind, we put, uh, we also want predictability. So we put a four-year tuition guarantee mm -hmm. for our students. You graduate in four years, your tuition fees never change. They stay the same for four years. But then there's more. We cap our tuition and fees at 12 hours. So you take that 15th hour to be a full-time student, that's free. If you do that for uh, you know, eight semesters, you've gone essentially, uh, four, you graduated in four years, but one semester is free. If you take 18 hours, you're pretty ambitious and are able to do that. Essentially, your senior year is free. Many of our students come to us. Well, our, our freshman class this year, they averaged 19 hours of dual credit courses. And if you assume 15 hours makes you a, uh, second semester freshman when you start if you take 15 hours you graduate in three and a half years one of those semesters is completely free so if you know we try to think about tuition and fees as both a carrot and a stick to help people get through and to understand and I guess we've had great success uh, uh, the year we started I think 23 percent of our students took 15 hours or more this year, our freshmen are more than 35%, taking 15 or more. Those kids have a great chance of graduating in, it, in four years or less and getting quickly into the workforce, doing great things for their families. So we try to look at every mechanism to help from, from how we support students with advising uh, to, uh, to our tuition and fees to help kids graduate. And, and that's a key thing. That's where we failed students for many years. Mm -hmm. um, we're getting a little short on time, so let's skip to the where we're going section. This is going to be less an issue for Paul Quinn College because a lot of this has to do with public universities, but I'm interested in, in hearing your take on some of these proposals. I'm just going to throw out some legislative proposals that could be on the table in January 2017. I, I'm interested in, 
in hearing what y'all think, kind of which keep you up at night, which worry you the most, um, and which are you think are kind of boogeyman that are being improperly blamed. Maybe they're not so bad. Um, I'm thinking outcomes-based funding. This is the idea of you know, basing either an increase in tuition or, uh, or state funding on a set of outcomes. You have to fit, you have to show that you can reach these outcomes to get the money. Or uh, tuition, financial aid, doing away with set-asides, which is financial aid that schools are required to put in a pot of money for the most needy students. Um, and then also we've all mentioned workforce. Obviously, most kids go to college because they want to get a job. You know, there's very few that think, oh, you know, that's not something I ever want in my life. How do you balance uh, workforce, which I know is something that, that you're doing in San Antonio, uh, having the proper programs for a, work, a Texas workforce without, you know, feeling like you're, you're diverting kids into specific programs that they, you know, might not otherwise want, feel like they need or want. So outcomes-based funding, tuition. If there's anything else, I really want to know, like, what what are you thinking of going into January, going into the legislative session? Um, what do you think is going to be the the scariest and the scariest proposal? I guess that's that's on the table. Putting you on the spot a little bit. <laughs> what go ahead. What keeps me awake at night is a combination of a number of things. In the past six years, the Texas state system funding from the state has been cut by twenty percent. That's a big number. Here's the balance we're having to deal with. We want to keep tuition low. It's 8% below the state average. We're determined to keep it there because of the population that we serve, and it's the right thing to do. But here's the problem. In any university, the biggest expense and the bulk of the balance sheet, the bulk of the, of the expenses go to faculty salaries and salaries. Our teachers are teaching 17% more classroom hours and are paid 25% less than the state average. With state funding being cut in a six-year period by 20%, it's a really bad formula and a scary program for a growing uh, system of universities. So that's what keeps me awake at night. I see no change. I don't see that uh, state participation will suddenly increase in a dramatic way. I think someone recently told me uh, state more state money for colleges is like expecting ad revenues to come back to newspapers. So as a journalist, that, that really put it into perspective for me. Uh, have your feelings on that changed since you went from legislator to, to higher education administrator? No, no, no. I was very involved in higher ed issues as a legislator. Um, so what we're doing in the last six years uh, we've increased, we're raising money for scholarships and we've increased what we had by 37% and grown the aid from scholarships by about 34% and we will keep doing that. We're not going to assume uh, that more is going to be coming from the state. I've had to learn how to stand on my own two knees when I go to the Capitol and we'll continue doing that. Uh, but that hope is not a good strategy. For, for UTRGV and, and Texas A&M um, in San Antonio, the outcomes-based funding idea is that, does that work for an institution that at its core is going to be serving more uh, non-traditional students, students that might be working you know, almost full-time while they're going to school? Is it fair to, to hold every public institution in the state up to the same set of 
the devil really is in the details there and depends on how that's structured. Mm -hmm. uh, on the one hand, I'm convinced that uh, our graduation and retention rates can be competitive with most schools in the state of Texas. Our retention rates, freshman, sophomore retention rates went up to just under 81% from the mid-70s as a legacy institution. So that puts us above the state average. That's not good enough. We want to be in the top four or five in the state. And, and I'm, I, these kids here, I have a bunch of my students right here, I'm absolutely convinced that if we give them the proper support, yeah. the proper mechanisms, uh, I mean, the proper incentives, that they're going to graduate, they'll be retained and graduate at competitive <laughs> rates. But the way, the way uh, that's structured and how that affects the funding formula worries me a lot. And so, I mean, that's the key. That, as I said, the devils are in the detail. Mm -hmm. if, if, if you do the details right, it's probably fine. But I, I want to see specifically what came out. Right. There are many institutions that have gone to performance-based funding or outcomes-based models. And, and it's absolutely, Guy is absolutely correct, that it depends on the structure, uh, on the infrastructure, and how those rates are calculated, and what's measured, and the staff that are crafting those formulas follow the intent of the policy and the legislation. You know, as public administrators, we all want to be held accountable to the public. We understand that very much. Uh, I think the standard me metrics we know at the federal level don't work particularly well in terms of uh, first of all, comparable data, and then what's actually measured in terms of retention, how it's measured, transfer students, how they're measured, and the fact that the only thing that's really measured consistently is first-time, full-time freshmen. When we know today that students move at least three times before they graduate or change majors, which uh, might um, change what they're doing over summer, and in some cases, we don't look at summer data consistently across the country. So there are, we all want to be held accountable, but there are a lot of nuances in how this work is done. There's also, we need to come together as, as, an, as certainly as an industry and as a state into what are the right metrics for the demographics that we're serving or any special needs that we may have, and each institution is different in making that happen. But I agree with both the Chancellor and President Daniels that it's very important that that retention rate occur between the freshman and sophomore year. But there's a lot more to, that goes into that in graduating in four years. And we all know that more than we can discuss here today. Um, I, I want to ask, state funding seems to be the focus of almost every story about public higher education. Any state you go into, right? Every state has seen a drop and how much money the state legislature is, is funneling into higher education. At, at one point, at what point do you stop calling yourself a public university? At what point does a public university become a public, an institution open to the public in which the state is just one investor? Anyone want to answer? <laughs> well, we I, I was going to just answer that different answer. I'll always <laughs> move on to, to, to a, a you know, different answer. I, I mean, that, that is an interesting question. That here's the thing you have to, it's, it, when you step back away from this in your role as a as university president and you ask yourself, well, what's different about the country right now than, say, in 1960, which is, near the beginning point of boom years in higher education. In 1960, 50% of the population, just under 50, 49 point something percent of the population was under 25 years old. 
and that's been cut in half. And so you have a much smaller percentage of the population who are either in higher education or who will be going to, and a much smaller percentage of the population who has a vested interest in that. Part of our challenge is to help people in the state understand the importance of higher education for those who don't have a direct vested interest in it. Well, you and, could see that if 50% of the population was going to college in 1960, well, there might be 25. more. There might be more people going to college now since it's expanded, that the kinds of people have expanded that are going. That's, that, that's, that's partly true, but if you think about half, most of the population in 1960 had a vested interest in what happened in, in education generally, in higher education as well. And so that's, many people don't have a direct personal interest in that. So the, we have to step back and, and I think be able to demonstrate how, how higher education benefits the public as a whole. Uh, that's, a, that's not the easiest challenge. The, the legislature has any number of other challenges now that, that they deal with. Uh, <clears throat> at, at the same time, we probably need as much, much flexibility as possible in generating revenue sources. Uh, I mean, tuition is never going to go up much at our institution because our, just given the demographics and the, uh, and the income. But at the same time, we do need as much flexibility as possible. I'm not going to let you guys off the hook for that question there. <laughs> the funding for higher ed is discretionary to the legislature. Right. And the number of dollars that are discretionary in 1960 was much bigger than it is now. Right. Uh, the federal government and federal courts have prescribed where the money will go and how it will be spent to a much larger degree. Uh, the legislature must fund public education. The legislature does not have such a constitutional obligation to fund higher education. And so uh, the legislators have a very difficult juggling act to be present at the table to help higher ed relative to the ease of which they could do it in the past. So if, Can I? yeah, go ahead. I think that the legislature has to be very careful um, about the optics of this. The college going population during the period that uh, Guy referenced looked very different than the college-going population right now, right. and so we are cutting state funding to higher education at a time where the face of the college student looks radically different, mm -hmm. and that's a horrible look. All right, so are we going to underinvest in a shifting demographic of students from low-income backgrounds who are minorities? when we know that this is the only ticket or, or the, the strongest opportunity that they will have to access fully the American dream. And I just think that states making any decision contrary to investing at these populations is one that will come back and do irreparable harm to the economics and the economy of the states in which they serve. I, I also think, you know, to what, to what, yes, to, to what we're hearing. Uh, the difference between good to great or great to even greater is philanthropy and corporate support, as, you're, as you mentioned. But the other opportunity for innovation that is much harder to do, but there is opportunities for innovation, is what we're doing with K-12 and how we look at uh, dual credit models in a way that are effective for college-level readiness and work. 
uh, early college, high school, AP, et cetera. So to President Daniel's earlier point about can you knock off a semester and then you've got you know, seven semesters left, there are greater opportunities, I think, there for innovation where the state is required to invest in K through 12 that we haven't fully leveraged yet. I'm going to open it up to questions soon, but I wanted to give uh, anyone the opportunity to say anything more about the, the last question was the where we were. I, I threatened to, to ask the chancellor how higher education has changed under the new governor, better or worse, um, if anyone better. else. <laughs> better, there you go. So Better. I mean, we've had one <coughs> session with Governor Abbott, and it was a seminal, it was a generational uh, change in higher ed funding. Tuition revenue bonds for every campus, a doubling of HEAF funds to build and maintain those campuses, an injection of money for higher ed. It was a great session for higher ed. We have one session to judge, but uh, I'm hopeful that that will be his legacy to reverse uh, what has been going on in higher ed. That was a very good yeah. session. It was an excellent session. Uh, so we have about 20 minutes or so left, so I want to let people from the, if you want to come up and ask a question, you can just line up behind the microphones. Uh, please um, identify yourself and speak loudly. Um, I'm going to try to repeat the questions so in case people can't hear them. Um, just gonna, wow, there's a lot. <laughs> I think we have a lot of college assignment. students in the room. <laughs> Class assignment. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna go one person from the back mic, one person from the front mic, and we'll do it like that. Okay. So let's start with the back mic and say your name and speak loudly. Hey y'all. Ooh, I can hear myself. All right. <laughs> hey y'all. I'm Jay. I'm with XYZ Atlas. We're a nonprofit here in Austin. I myself am not like a Texas native. I come all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. And so a lot of my, I guess my question comes from that background. As someone who came through the K through 12 system in Georgia, I got to see how the education system was really divided. I was thrown around between the accelerated program and the normal program. I was put in magnet school and I was putting the gifted and the honors, you know, thrown around basically. But even in those classes, they didn't really prepare us for college until like my junior and senior year of high school. And I feel as though that's no way to sort of prepare someone for the college field if that's, you know, in their future, if that's something they want to do. I want to know how in Austin, in Texas, they, how, what would be the best way to sort of shape the high school curriculum for people who want to go to college? You know, uh, give them uh, money management classes, give them some sort of extra curriculum, some sort of extra class that fits into their block scheduling to sort of help them prepare and understand what college is, you know, the financial responsibility, the hours that might go into it. And if they come, I come from like a low income, uh, you know, I get pretty much the definition of minority as you get with gender identity, sexual identity, being black and everything. How can you help these people in these different classes prepare for college in their early stages of life, like in high school, middle school, whatever? I know that we have federal programs like TRIO that are really helpful, but how does the Zero. state buy into the TRIO model and ensure, I, I talked to a student for a story the other day who was moved from a, one high school in the Dallas area to another high school in Garland. One high school had TRIO and the other high school didn't have TRIO. And she doesn't think she would have gone to college without that programming. So how do you, how do you, how is higher education leaders, I know that some higher education institutions have, have partnered with K-12 high schools in their area. I know uh, President Sorrell, you actually go and get kids from schools. How can we make this something that is an institutional required 
thing on the state level? Is it legislative? Is it, does it have to happen in university to university? How do you do that? Well, it's one of the issues I believe regional universities are, are tackling, uh, comprehensive regional universities. It is important that the, the learning models start earlier. We all know if you're not reading by age eight in third grade, you're, you have a much lower likelihood of being ready for college. Depending on the disciplines you're interested in, we all know that if you don't have the right math or the right science courses by eighth, ninth grade, uh, you've missed that track as well. So I, the public universities are working hard at this. It goes back to the funding model question that we're not necessarily funded for these types of initiatives. So these peer mentor programs that many comprehensive universities are doing and that many comprehensive public universities are doing with their neighborhood regional school districts is something that will help to move the needle. This is what I mentioned earlier, that we haven't done enough yet to leverage that innovation with the early college high school model, which is state funded. I, I was gonna say, um, so we believe that the core issue is that the majority of the time the students live, they are outside of the classroom. So if you give a student an A in education, but you're sending them home to an F life, you've not created an A student, okay? That's just the bottom line. So to us, colleges and universities have to turn themselves outward mm -hmm. and really reach deep into the communities and engage. So we do that in a number of ways. One, our students go into the elementary schools and they mentor those students, right? We hold a number of just campus days where you can come on our campus at any point and you just see kids running around, right? Because we think that exposure is important. We have a charter school on our campus, right? It's an environmental charter school. Now, you know, folks have different feelings about charter schools, but the reality of it is you need more educational options, not less. All right, so how we get there, how we even out the resource issue is incredibly important. You know, the other thing that we've done is we created this concept called a weekend university. And the point of the weekend university, and we challenge all colleges and universities to think about doing something like this. So the Reality of a family that is in an under-resourced community, having had a positive academic experience, K to 12, is very low. Because if you'd had the positive experience, you wouldn't be living in those circumstances. So then to expect that family to consist, or those families to consistently produce academic high-achieving students is unrealistic. So what we've done is we've said, look, why don't we open up the school on weekends and say to the community, what is it that you'd like to learn? Right? Not for you know, a college credit, but for just improving your life. And the answers have come back to us. We want to learn computer literacy skills. We want to learn financial literacy skills. So we host free classes for people to come in. They can sign up. They take them on the weekends. And you know, we, we arrange for food. We arrange for babysitting. Right? And the, Parents just come in and you learn whatever you want to learn. Now that does a couple of things. One, it addresses your actual capacity, but it also replaces your last negative experience with the classroom, right? So now your kids see you as a college going person, right? They then think this is reasonable for me. The parent feels better about themselves because they're engaged, like no longer they remember being left out of an academic experience. We as colleges and universities can do more by seeing ourselves more as, uh, less as just a purely academic entity and more as an anchor institution with the responsibility for lifting everyone. 
So let's go to the front mic here. My name is Andrew Hubbard. I serve as a student government president at the University of Texas at San Antonio. I wanted to ask uh, about some innovative ideas to increase access, especially to non-traditional students and low-income students, while still striving to be better and better systems and universities, uh, which of course takes quite a bit of funding. So we, we said earlier, Texas schools are accessible, right? How can we make that even better to non-traditional students? Can we first stop calling them non-traditional students? Sure. Sure. Right, like labels matter, okay? Like the, the reality of it is we have to start using more inclusive language. And I'm not criticizing you for this at all. I'm just saying we have to use more inclusive language to stop creating the impression that the students who are here aren't students that belong, right? Like you're not an anomaly. So I think the first thing to do is to change the mindset of how we are even engaging our students. Anyone else want to add? You're, you're talking about access. Uh, it, you know, it, the interesting piece of that, in, in many cases, most of us are offering classes uh, and we have facilities that are full. Uh, some of the online things help, but, but, there, but there are also barriers there. Part of, I think part of what you do is look at uh, how you can partner with, if you think about higher education as part of a system and how you partner with community colleges to do things, how you partner with, with the public schools, the community colleges have, uh, can offer some pathways that, uh, that we really can't. And so part of the s solution to that, I think, is partnerships with your community colleges. And you've got some good ones in San Antonio. All right. Back right. Hi, I'm a professor at the University of Texas at San Antonio, too. Nice representation here. I'd like to ask the panelists how their specific universities are approaching promotion and retention of diverse faculty, notably women faculty and faculty of color. Each of you noted how important it is for students to have them both as mentors and role models. But the economy of higher ed right now is hiring more and more tenure, excuse me, adjunct professors and NTTs which do not have job security, and they are rarely paid a living wage with benefits. And as a result of that, they don't have the face time with the students, and they're more often to be women and also faculty of color. So can you please address how each of your institutions is promoting retention and job security for underrepresented groups in the faculty so they can be role models and mentors for your students? I think there's also some, been some interesting coverage recently on four private big universities that made it a goal to, uh, to bring in more diverse faculty and there, you know, some other institutions that saw themselves losing those faculty members, uh, you know, public state universities, seeing their, their professors going to Yale, that's great for that professor, but, you know, when you look at PhD production rates for people of color, there's not enough being done to you know, encourage those numbers to go up. So uh, how do you retain, promote uh, more diverse faculty? Uh, you want to think? We have a program in the Texas State system through our foundation called the Grow Your Own Program where we identify students maybe at the master's level who want to pursue a PhD and go into teaching and we pay for their education 
at whatever school they're going to get their doctorate with the idea that they come back and teach in our system. And it's, it's for African-American, Hispanic, Asian professors to try to get our faculty to look more like it. It's our biggest fundraising effort uh, as a system, at the system level to fund this Grow Your Own program, and it's a, been a great program for us. I feel like President Sorrell has something to say. Oh, I, okay. <laughs> First of all, folks don't want diverse faculties. All right, let's just call it what it is, because if you want something, you go do it. All right, we have zero problem attracting diversity of faculty members and staff. All right, zero. We don't have tenure, in part because I don't believe in tenure, right? I don't think you have a property right to your job, but I do think we can create an environment where you are rewarded for being an incredibly effective teacher, all right? And we do that. So we don't have a lot of faculty turnover at our school because our faculty members are nurtured, they're treated well, when they do outstanding things, we treat them like we would treat all American football players, right? We brag on them, we embrace them. Now, in terms of finding faculty and keeping them, you know what, your culture can help with that, right? If you have a welcoming culture, if you have a culture where people feel as if they're not recruited because of their specialness, but they're recruited and nurtured because of their gifts, that's a different experience. People stay places, people are attracted to places, where they have the ability to create substantial change. Right now, economic resources certainly impact that, and they help. But you didn't become a professor because you were money hungry. If you did, we have to have a whole different conversation. <laughs> All right, so something in you was inspired by the ability to do good. So give people a chance to do good without treating them as if they're some oddball, right? I mean, look, I, I know what it's like to be recruited because you're black. Like I do. And I tried really hard not to accept any of the offers from schools that did that. Right? We have a surging Hispanic population. We're up to 20% of our student body is Hispanic. And we have no special Hispanic recruiting programs. We have a culture that says we over me. The needs of our communities supersede the wants of our individuals, period. Right? My senior staff. My VP of Academic Affairs is a woman. My CFO is a male. My, in fact, every director at the institution, with the exception of one, is a woman. Some of them are black, some of them are white, some of them are Latina, some of them are, are Indian, right? Like, the point is, we have set out and said, we want people who care about our values. And amazing things have happened since then. So I, I you know, I've heard the criticism, well, you all are small, it doesn't work. Well, you know what? It starts somewhere, right? So instead of criticizing us for what the, the 10,000 students we don't have, how about copying the programs we do have that are working? Okay, we only have about eight minutes. We have a lot of people left, so let's, who would we have the back? Okay, so front now. Okay, sorry. Um, my name is Kelly Zog. I'm also from the University of Texas, San Antonio. And this is more towards President Sorrell. I was uh, at a program, business program. I was with HBCUs and HSIs institutes, and I got to meet Kevin Lee. Oh, my man. Yeah, I, was, I figured you knew him. He's awesome. And I was just wondering, 
um, specifically Paul Quinn College, how you feel like your programs there um, promote uh, diversity and not so, so much segregation on the real world? Yeah, so we are, first of all, Kevin Lee, who she's referring to, is an incredible student, right? The, the college career that he is racking up is extraordinary. Um, we promote diversity by never talking about diversity. Right, like literally, you, you don't hear that word on our campus at all. And if you walk through our campus, you are struck by the fact that there's everything there. Right? We believe in teaching our students the value of values and the value of being a high-performing individual and learning how to network and learning how to engage and stand up for things that matter. And you met Kevin. I mean, he's an incredible ambassador for that. And the amazing part about Kevin Lee, and Lumina featured him in the story last year, uh, is that he's homeless, right? Homeless. Carries, he lives in my dormitory, right? Carries a 3.8 grade point average. Um, is, I mean, the, the question isn't whether he'll be successful. It's which gift will he use to be successful. And But we celebrate him. We tell our stories. There's this great African proverb which says until the tiger, well it's actually a lion but we're tigers so we changed the animal, right? <laughs> so until the tiger tells its tale, the story of the hunt will always favor the hunter, right? So we tell our students, you tell your story, you own your story, and you never apologize for your story. And environments accept you for those qualities. And I just want to commend you because um, talking to Kevin and Tiana, she was on um, my... Oh, so you were in California with yeah, them? Yeah, yeah, I was in California yeah. with the Yeah, they're awesome and it, I really like the HBCU programs because I feel like in today's society that that a culture kind of sometimes feels suppressed with the press and everything that's going on and it was really awesome for me as someone who came from an area that I had maybe two African Americans in my class and so I got to hear Kevin and all their um, life stories and it's really awesome they feel like a family at your university and I really commend you on that because that's awesome as a President. Well, thank you. When we get done, I want to take a picture so with you so I can show Kevin and Tiana. Yes. All right. Thank you. Hi. My name is Sadie Hernandez, and I'm a student at UTRGV. Um, so I, like many others at UTRGV, have a Pell Grant, and so it covers almost all my tuition. So my issue and the issue of a lot of students that I know isn't really about tuition costs, but more about quality. And so from personal experience, I've like realized that it's professor quality is subpar, and also like the lack of recognition for students who have success outside of like Christian spaces is always like ignored and glazed over. So I wanted to know how you are working to include students that are outside of the Christian sphere since it's a public university, and also like ensuring quality of professors on campus so that way we can actually have quality degrees in education versus, you know, just a check mark on demographic boxes for, you know, Hispanic students who just graduated. What, what, what uh, discipline are you in? Um, I'm in the Brownsville um, campus. But, but what's your major? I am political science and Mexican-American studies. Mm -hmm. the, uh, as, when you go to, the, the, first of all, the quality of the professors, what we're doing right now, we were recruiting about 1,000. We had, we had uh, 100 faculty, new faculty positions we recruited last year. We'll recruit 100 more this year. We recruit uh, faculty from around the country. We try to get the best faculty we can. That probably, the quality of your faculty probably varies discipline by discipline. We have 
For example, in certain areas, people who are among the best in the world, in certain areas, we probably need to, uh, to do a better job in recruiting our faculty. And part of it may be how recently we've recruited faculty there, too. Uh, I don't know how long your faculty have been in those programs, uh, but, but it, varies, it varies significantly. If you look at the number of faculty members that the UT system recognized with teaching awards, we were at the top this past year. So we know we have some great faculty. Uh, I couldn't defend every one of them for you. But we do, we do have very good ones that I can point out to. But the, the faculty quality is always an issue that concerns us. Student recognition, uh, again, we have students who, uh, who go to conferences. We have many people that we supported to come here. And so uh, again, that, in part, depends on your discipline as well, because the two issues you mentioned are related to each other. Uh, your, the faculty in your discipline should help support and promote and recognize what you do. Uh, so I appreciate your mentioning those disciplines to me. That, that'll help me going forward. Maybe you guys can talk after the panel that might be, can provide her a little more context on your training. Hi, my name is Camille Wynn, and I'm a college sophomore, and I serve as the secretary of the NAACP unit at St. Houston State University. I actually have two questions for the entire panel. My first question is, um, I know lots of universities in Texas pride themselves on being diverse, racially diverse at least. Um, but from a lot of experiences I've heard from my friends who go to multiple universities across from Texas, they feel as if there's still segregation happening, especially within their own race. I have friends who refuse to go to the NAACP unit at my school because they feel they are not black enough for it. I have friends who feel they're isolated from their own race because they feel they're not you know, black enough or Asian enough or Hispanic enough. How do you propose that you fight, like combat that, those thoughts? You want me to take that first? Or, go ahead. Please. So first of all, you're not black enough if you don't think you're black enough. You're not Asian enough if you don't think you're Asian enough. This idea that you have to fit a stereotype is absolutely ridiculous. All right? But the reality of it is, if you take ownership of those feelings, you are perpetuating those feelings. OK, trust me. I am the president of a historically black college that never went to a historically black college that if you looked at what's on my iPhone for music, you're going to find a little, you'll find some Girl Crush by Little Big Town. You'll find Kanye. You'll find J. Cole. You'll find Guns N' Roses, right? Like, I am all over the spectrum in that regard. But you know what? You don't get to define my blackness. Right? Like, I define my blackness. And I would say to those individuals, it is a shame that they have been made to feel that way. But it stops when they decide that it stops. So show up. Right? Show that you know, there's this great, amazing spectrum of individuals with diverse interests and, and, and take pride in that. But never, ever back down from who you are or be made to feel as if you should be in exile. No. And if they have problems with that, listen, tell them to call me and I will give them a pep talk before the next <laughs> meeting. Okay? I tried to prove it again as to, like, because I am Asian, but I am part of the NAACP unit, and I tried to prove that diversity for, across all platforms is possible. And I, I really tried to prove that. We tell our students, we tell our communities, you can be our kind and not be our color. Mm -hmm. All um, we care about is you sorry, be our kind. We, we have uh, three more people. Okay, yeah. Would you mind asking the panelists afterwards your sure, second yeah. question? Okay, let's go to the back. Hi, my name's Ray Gay. I want to make a quick 
I went through the old system, Pan American College, UT Austin. I graduated with money in the bank because my expense ratio for paying higher ed was about 15% of my annual budget. Do you know what that is today and where it's going? The state contribution to higher ed was much greater than that it is now. Uh, I will say that tex the, the cost of public university in Texas is still lower than its regional peers. Um, it's obviously gone up in recent years, as we all know. If you compare it to even a school in Louisiana and some other places, it's, it's cheaper to go to, a, to some colleges here. But does anyone have an idea of exp expenses for a student? I know that most of the expenses outside the classroom are outside of the classroom, right? Books, living in a dorm. Versus living at home. Yeah, versus having living at home. But that, that assumes yeah. that you live in the same city that you go to school in. Right. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to equalize that. Right. Hi, I'm Omar Jimenez, and I was a uh, UT Pan American student, and now this semester I'm finishing up my uh, courses online at UTRGB, so I was glad to see some UTRGB representation, and I've lived 10 minutes for Paul Quinn College, so I appreciate all the work you've done, and beautiful campus, and great work. Um, in my high school, I went to Booker T back in Dallas, and I my teacher told me about uh, Pan American back then, and she talked about the affordability and that's what, that's what got me to uh, the Valley because it was very affordable and it still is even with UTRGB. So for the panelists, um, what are some of the ways that you're recruiting students outside your colleges from other parts of the state? And is affordability also something uh, that you mentioned to bring students to your campuses? Yeah, affordability, yes. If you, uh, uh, when you go through the Houston airport, look for our ads there. So, uh, but the, the truth is, as we move into our second year, we've expanded our circle of direct recruitment uh, to you know, places like San Antonio to Houston. But we'd like some of your best students too. Uh, we send enough students elsewhere, we, we think. And so we actually have begun to expand our our recruiting as well. You see that both in the advertisements that we have in airports, but also in our presence on uh, uh, high school campuses and recruiting events there. And, and you recruit uh, students, by the way, through programs. We have a physician assistance program. <clears throat> we have, uh, we can admit 50 students a year. We have about 900 applicants from all over the United States. If you put the right programs in place, you have a very good chance to recruit students from a lot of different places. It's all about programs, really. We reduced tuition and fees by $10,000 and created a model by which students can graduate only $9,000 of debt. 40% of our students come from outside the state of Texas. 60% come from outside the Dallas area. Um, we think it's culture. We think it's programming. And we think it's cost and value as well. We're very actively recruiting around the state of Texas. This is our first year with a full freshman class. Prior to that, we were an upper division transfer school only. We received applications from all over the world, and we're building our first residence hall to accommodate the growth outside of our region. And affordability is key to what we're doing moving forward, and we're focused on keeping our tuition the lowest that it is in San Antonio right now outside the community college system. This is going to have to be the last question. I'm, I'm sorry, we're already over time. Um, 
My name is David Roberts. I'm an admissions counselor here at the University of Texas. And I'm curious to know, uh, tonight we've talked, or this morning, we've talked a little bit about uh, access, but supplemented by student success and the importance of student success. So I'm curious to know from the panelists um, how successful the top 10% law has been in not only providing college access, but ensuring student success after admission into college. Well, this is our first year with freshmen, so we don't have that same issue yet. We, uh, so we're, we look forward to the conversation in the future. Chancellor, you want to weigh in on top 10? Yeah, you know, it's, it's more impactful at your school and, and A&M than it is Anywhere other schools. Else. And so I don't have a great experience. I think it has been good to diversify those campuses. It's interesting, one, one in five of our freshmen are top 10% students, so they're students we want. Uh, I think it probably has been, as the Chancellor said, uh, very important in diversifying some other campuses. We do just fine there, but uh, we'd like as many of those top 10% students as possible. We'd like to have them, so. All right, thank you. Thank you for coming, everyone. Uh, we'll stick around, some of us, so.